Welcome to The Doctor Is Out, a podcast hosted by Dr. Sharif Akili, resident physician at Stanford Hospital and investor at Polaris Partners. Join Sharif in exploring the extraclinical practice of medicine as he interviews healthcare leaders who have gone from bedside to build companies, run health systems, spearhead public policy, and pursue many other paths where they lend their unique bedside perspectives. Our guest today is the Chief Medical Officer of Arcelix and Surgeon Dr. Angela Shen. I am so excited to introduce today's guest. She is a surgeon, an MD-MBA. She served as Chief Medical Officer of four biotech companies, including two which have gone public. And maybe more importantly, as I can personally attest, she is just an incredible leader. Dr. Angela Shen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Sharif. Thanks so much for having me. Angela, the title of Chief Medical Officer comes in a lot of different flavors in this field. Can you explain what it means to be the Chief Medical Officer of a biotech company? Yeah, I, I can. Uh, the, it's a really good question. I, I remember the with my very first Chief Medical Officer role, I went around and asked a bunch of people, what does it mean? Because I hadn't done it before and the answers were all different. And I think over the, the past number of years, um, just having experienced it myself, I've started to realize that it definitely comes in a lot of different flavors, as you say. Um, there are different phenotypes of chief medical officers. There are some who are very scientific and very translational. They're brilliant scientists um, and that's their forte. There are others who um, are really uh, all about the telling the story and are excellent at being externally facing, um, uh, sharing sharing the the updates and telling the story externally, whether it's a it's at a conference or in front of an analyst or in front of investors. Uh, so there's some chief medical officers uh, who you know that's their forte. Um, there's Another group, I'd say a bucket that the forte is very uh, strength operationally. So when it comes to clinical development, they operationally know how to get shit done. Um, and, you know, I, I see myself as sort of falling in that bucket, um, probably yeah. more than others. Uh, you know, I'm not the most sophisticated scientist compared to some of these other brilliant uh, scientific doctors. Uh, but, but yeah, boy, I can, if I really want to, I can get shit done. So, uh, so just having the operational strength and knowing how to get from point A to B to C to D and do it quickly and efficiently, uh, when you're doing clinical development, I think that's, you know, that really carries a lot of the weight for, for some chief medical officers. Um, and then there are others that are managers and team builders and they can build these amazing teams and, and create sustainable teams and companies, um, that that will last for for a long time and uh not necessarily you don't have to necessarily just fit in one category you can there are some cmos that fit in multiple categories uh so those are sort of the buckets i think about um you know i think that it it depends on to the stage of the company and where, what the company is focused on but uh, i think a lot of chief medical officers more often than not wear many hats so you know, they have to be able to communicate across all the different uh, sort of functions and be able to get alignment, be able to pull things together, uh, whether it's 
discovery and pipeline or research and translational data, um, you know, regulatory work, uh, externally facing, as we talked about, like press releases, um, even getting involved in, in manufacturing, if that's gonna, going to affect the clinical program. So uh, yeah, I, I would say those would be the, the main buckets that I think of for chief medical officers. Yeah, very cool. Taking even a bigger step back for our listeners who may not know, being a chief medical officer of like a biotech company is very different from being like chief medical officer of like a hospital or a clinical company, uh, sorry, like a healthcare services company. Uh, would it be fair to say that if you're maybe at least the chief medical officer of a early stage biotech company, you are leading and running clinical development of a drug or a therapeutics platform, building that team together? Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, and as you, you know, you you hinted at this, but even a biotech, it, it can be a big company, a small company, it can mm. be private or it can be public. It can be in the preclinical stage or it can be in clinic, uh, you know, clinical stage. If, if it's clinical stage company, it might be early stage trials versus late stage trials. So I think all of those really affect the type of chief medical officer that's needed um, in that company. So, but I think, yes, you're right. The, the one thing that all of those different types of um, stages have in common is as a chief medical officer, your mission is to develop whatever it is, whether it's a you know, device or therapeutic and whatever indication, um, your mission is to bring that, to develop that technology, whatever it is, um, bring it to humans as safely as you can uh, and, and try to get it to patients. And how many people do you usually have under you within your team? Again, acknowledging that sizes of biotech companies can change, but usually do you oversee the, um, the clinical team? Do you oversee the, the research scientists who are interacting with the clinical team? Or do you contract that with a CRO? Or how does that usually work in your day-to-day work? Yeah, um, so if we're talking about a small company, uh, like a private company, uh, the team can be really small. And I've, I've been in companies where I was the only clinical team member for quite some time and was was wearing a lot of different hats and rolling up my sleeves and getting to the leads, but also needing to step back and establish a higher level strategy to follow. Um, so yeah, I, I think that it really, it, it really just depends on the situation. Um, but I've been flying solo in some situations, but I've also been a part of teams that were much larger and, and more developed. And the um, chief medical officer and the clinical team um, in, in many biotechs includes functions like um, clinical operations, um, statisticians, data managers, outsourcing managers, pharmacovigilance, um, you know, obviously uh, other medics to, to help oversee trials if you have multiple trials going with medical monitors. So, uh, so usually all of those functions will, will uh, fall within clinical and, and cool. regulatory sometimes too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you end up finding yourself down this path? You, I, I, Cause you were Angela originally a surgeon, right? Yeah. I trained in surgery and, um, <laughs> I found myself on this path because uh, I had done bench work, lab work, and just 
unfortunately wasn't very good at it. I had a lot of fun doing it, but just knew it wasn't going to be that that wasn't my um, my place to shine. <laughs> so, and it might correlate with my cooking abilities in the kitchen. I, I feel like there's a correlation <laughs> there. Um, but uh, makes sense. Yeah, cooking is yeah. a lot. My mom would say this all the time. Cooking is effectively like a chemistry experiment. Yeah, like there's timing, there's multitasking, there's sequencing, and um, I'm pretty much really good at microwaving food in increments of 30 seconds, and that's pretty much it. So <laughs> that type of skill set does not work well in the lab. Right. right. Um, but I'm really, I had really, really good experiences in the lab. I uh, just learned a ton, but knew that I preferred clinical trial setting and in clinical research setting instead of lab work, um, you know, bench work. Uh, so I, I knew pretty early on, and I, I only learned that because I did have that amazing experience in the labs um, before, but I just uh, was really drawn to the clinical trial part of it. And so, um, you know, I ended up entering industry initially, really my goal was to get experience in, in how to design and run clinical trials because um, in the hospitals or in academia, it felt like when you run clinical trials, you're doing it in your spare time and you're not mm -hmm. necessarily like you've got your main jobs to do. And then on the side, you're trying to run trials. So it just, it seemed like, you know, I really wanted to learn how to run clinical trials the right way. And when, once I joined industry, um, that sort of put me on the path of, you know, clinical development. And that's when I decided I really liked the, the, the art and the science and business of drug development. Um, so I've pretty much been in oncology clinical development since. Wow. So you were practicing as a surgeon, you were doing some clinical trial work and you pivoted. Was that something that you expected? How did that transition take place? Was it something that you would have done differently looking back or would you have given yourself any advice if you could go back and, you know, back in time? Yes, yeah, definitely. Um, it was a hard transition for me. It took me about five years to completely transition. And during those five years, I would still take call in the hospitals in wow. the weekends, take call. Um, and then during the week, be working with the industry job focused on clinical trials. And in the back of my mind, during those years, I, I kept thinking that I was gonna learn about clinical trials and then go back. To, to the hospital, to, to clinic and to the hospital um, and to work with patients. But, uh, you know, at some point, it, it, I think what happened was I needed to redefine myself because I'd always thought of myself as, as, a, as a physician first, or, you know, in my case, a surgeon. And yeah. I wasn't ready to part with that. And there was a really, I would say, a pretty bad stigma at the time. Um, so this yeah. is maybe 15 years ago. Um, I think it might still exist, you know, it's, I think yeah. it's fair to say it was, it was a, like when I left, when I left, it was a bad stigma and you're right. It might still exist. Um, it sort of softened for me over time, but I had a hard time admitting at first that I, you know, everybody called it going to the dark side, going right. into history. And I had a hard time admitting to myself, but that that's where I wanted to be. And that's where I was having the most fun. And that's where I felt very passionately about, you know, I still love surgery. That was my first love, but I felt like with clinical trials and drug development, I could make a bigger impact for more people more efficiently. Because if you can get certain drugs developed, you end up impacting a lot of patients at the same time. Um, 
so it, it was a tough transition for me, but I, I do have to say that once I did let go and it took me five years, um, where I was trying to do both. Um, mm-hmm. but once I let go, that's when my industry career took off. So it held me back when I constantly was thinking, oh, I'm going to go back and go back and go back. And that held me back. But once I let go, my industry career took off. Um, I've had the time of my life. Uh, it took me years before I stopped hearing ghost page sound, like my pager, <laughs> pager sounds. Like I would wake up and still hear my pager, even though I didn't have anything anymore. And it took me years to figure out how to sleep every night because I'd been so used to being on call. Um, and it was, yeah, my sleep patterns are still pretty messed up. So, um, but yeah, it's, it it was the right decision for me. Um, what would I do differently? Um, if I could sort of advise myself from, you know, go back in time and give some advice to myself uh, and, and try to figure out what to do differently, it would be, it would all be about just the feeling of insecurity I had back then during that transition, trying to redefine or understand who I was. Like, I felt like I couldn't call myself a physician anymore. Like I had somehow deviated from what I was supposed to do. And it, it, it took a while for me to, to, to redefine myself um, and be comfortable with it. And during that period of insecurity um, and probably, you know, there's a lot of immaturity back then too. Um, you know, I said a lot of dumb stuff. <laughs> so you know, and uh, so what I try to remember is you, you end up saying a lot of things that it's that you wouldn't like, I think back and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I said those things or did those things. Um, so now, you know, now what I do is I, you know, A, I'm grateful for everybody who actually gave me a chance, like despite me saying dumb stuff. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, B, um, I am, you know, I try to be patient with uh, other people who may be in similar situations or just in general who might be feeling insecure and saying things that might sound offensive. Like I try not to hold it against them. Right. Um, because I was there once. Right. So, so I think if I could do anything differently, I would have, I would try to advise myself to, to get a grip sooner um, and not have that feeling of insecurity for that long, because that really does affect the way you communicate and the way you, um, come across to people. Yeah. I think this is pretty common in medicine, humbly myself. I mean, I think a lot of people may end up in medicine for, or because of some, some external pressures can make, you know, push that decision, um, maybe not the most organic way. And then when you get to medicine, I think there's so much information that you have to learn and, um, so much, it depends on clinical skill that there can be constant sense of inadequacy um, and it has like impact and then it just sort of permeates and then you work long hours and, and you know, you we for some reason take pride in the fact that we work long hours sometimes and that just like perpetuates the culture. And so, yeah, um, that's a really good point. That would probably be my second thing that I would tell, tell myself, it's not cool. To, to be sleep deprived. Like it, it doesn't make you <laughs> stronger and better to, no. to be able to stay up for 72 hours without sleep. Like that's back then, if you were tired, that was a sign of weakness. Yeah. Right. Like if you had been on call for, you know, however long o- overnight and then had to go to OR or whatever, go do consults or whatever it was. And, you know, you weren't really allowed to see retired. You weren't even allowed to look tired. And if you did, that was a sign of weakness. So 
So yeah, I would, I think now I actually like that there's been this, in general, there's been a shift, like people need to realize <clears throat> sleep is really, really important for long-term health, physical health, mental health, everything health. And um, yeah, that's, I would probably, if I, if I had a time machine and I could go back in time, I would definitely try to prioritize sleep more. You know, I think, again, I think it's, we're still struggling with that today. You're not too old, Angela. So. <laughs> I feel like I'm 80 inside because I didn't get enough sleep. This is what yeah. happened over the years when you don't get enough sleep. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, so you, you practiced surgery and then you entered industry. This, this is not the typical path to becoming a chief medical officer. If you reflect back, what would you say is like the, what's like the traditional pathway to get into this field? Um, does it need to be through medicine or do I feel like chief medical officers often do have clinical backgrounds and, you know, if somebody else was interested in exploring it, what might you think sets them up for that? Uh, so what I have seen happen is, um, physicians can enter industry in different ways and through different levels. Um, so I've seen some physicians enter through industry by, um, seeking fellowships that are set up. So a lot, some of these pharmas have like one year fellowships hmm. that are set up, you know, specifically to train physician researchers, um, or, or getting some type of your foot in the door at a biotech where you're offering help. And, and some, I've seen physicians get in like that, where that's how they were introduced and got their, you know, worked their way into biotech and then it engrafted <laughs> and then expanded. So, um, so I think, I've also seen, you know, obviously the, the um, top of the food chain, you know, these academics, the, the big names that, uh, that um, have ranked highly uh, in large academic centers. Um, they, I've seen a number of those go into industry too. And it's sort of interesting to watch that, you know, across the boards, they sort of have the same struggle in some ways. It's like that identity crisis, the the going over to the dark side, like there's a period of insecurity. There's a period of learning how to communicate differently. Cause when you communicate in the hospital, it's a totally way of different way of communicating when you're in the company, whether it's like yeah. a small biotech or a large pharma, it's, it's just a different, it's very different. And it's a, it's a learning curve. And so you can't, whether you're going in sort of at a more junior level or at a super senior level or somewhere in between, um, everybody has that learning curve and they realize that it's not about writing orders and somebody's filling your orders. It's about getting alignment and figuring out who your stakeholders are and getting um, everything to work together. And it's not just about you writing orders and somebody executing them. Yeah. Yeah. That's very insightful. Do you think an MBA was useful for that? Or do you think residency even was useful for that? Yeah, I would say, my, you know, the, I think my, um, the real, the really, the really helpful part of my residency that came in the most helpful in my career, which, which was totally unexpected, was um, I covered the the ICU a lot, uh, surgical ICU a lot. Um, spent a lot of time covering that during my residency, and just having that experience in the ICU um, and understanding pressures and vent settings and you know basically how to how to keep patients alive um, mm -hmm. and, and seeing end of life and uh, it's a, 
that ended up unexpectedly taking a really key role in my ability to work on the CAR-T programs. Because initially when I first started working on the CAR-T programs at Novartis, um, the field didn't really know how to deal with toxicity management. Like CHOP and PEN had just figured out that through the, the first pediatric patient they treated that tocilizumab might work, but you know, CAR-T therapy, it, it, it went through, it was a little bit scary at the beginning because a lot of the patients would end up in the ICU and, and some would be intubated, some would be on pressors. And I think typically if you aren't sort of, you don't have a strong, um, have, haven't had a lot of exposure to the ICU setting, like you get scared of that. So I would see like drug developers um, want to stay away from really high risk drugs like that, especially ones that you can't predict or, or you can't easily control or mitigate. Um, and I, I think CAR-T therapy back then fell into that bucket. So I feel like my background, my, my um, training and all the exposure I got in the ICU ended up helping me function better as the clinician who's trying to, the initial, the first clinician <laughs> trying to, in industry, trying to develop the CAR-T therapy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Who would have known that that would have, you know, played such a role? Um, yeah. Yeah. And then to your question about MBA and how that's yeah. helpful. Um, you know, it's a, it's a funny story. I decided at a pretty young age that I wanted to get an MBA and I, it was nothing more than um, Paul Lauterber who uh, won the Nobel prize a number of years ago for his work with MRIs. Um, and I, I was pretty young, I think it was about 16 when I did like a sort of this unpaid summer internship in his lab. Um, and he was phenomenal, like he was prolific. And he would, you know, every once in a while say things to me like, well, you know, this is all, it's all about managing, you know, a portfolio. There's high risk, high return, low risk, low return. It's like, it's a business in a way. And so, um, you know, that sort of stuck with me. It imprinted on me at a pretty young age. And I sort of, that's why I pursued a business degree later is because I wanted to be able to think about things in a different perspective in that sort of business perspective. And, you know, that was sort of like a naive, it wasn't that simplistic, but it ended up being a great, it, it was good for me. I thought business school was harder than medical school. Go figure. Yeah, I had, I, I had, I thought business school was harder and it's because I had to learn a completely different language, uh, lingo. Um, I had to learn how to think differently, and uh, it was I, overall it was a great experience. And I have a great network of, of friends um, um, from that. But it, it, I think it was just forcing me to think about things differently, and having and developing a different lingo. And I do apply it; like I see it um, when we, in everyday work now. You know, when we do financings or when we. Uh, talk about you know, even budgets and projections and just figuring out how to prioritize some of the things in the portfolio. I think a lot of that sort of way of thinking has been helpful. Makes sense. Obviously, I'm biased. <laughs> I've been an MBA myself. Remind me, Angela, what point did you get at the MBA? Oh, boy. Yeah, I started my MBA when I started in industry. Very cool. Yeah, so I was doing, yeah, that's... In taking call, I think at some point, I remember probably the peak of my madness. Um, I would be at work Monday through Friday in California doing, you know, clinical trials industry. Um, I think it was XLX at the time. I'd 
fly back to New York City because I'm this is where I work, oh, wow. and, and I would take I would take call. Um, no, I would go to class on Saturday, and then on Sunday take call like overnight Saturday night into Sunday call, and then I'd fly back to for work in California. That was crazy. I didn't realize how crazy that was until hindsight. That that can make an MBA more difficult too. I think. Wait, well, so- my, my whole thing about the MBA is I had a hard time with the acronyms, like yeah. uh, like LBO. To me, that's a large bowel obstruction. Yeah, PE it, is a pulmonary embolism. You yeah, know? yeah, I'm, I'm like large bowel obstruction, but no, to, to business, in business school, that's a leverage buyout. So yeah. you know, there are times when I'd just be staring at the test being like, I know LBO does not stand for large bowel obstruction in this case. I just can't remember what it stands for. <laughs> that's right. So would you have done business school earlier if you could have in hindsight? Um. No, I don't think so. Um, I think, no, I'm really happy with how everything worked out. I just sort of, it, it fell together the way it was supposed to fall together. Yeah. And you, you did a part-time program. Yeah. At NYU Stern, I was part-time. Yeah. And do you think that any reflections on part-time versus full-time programs? Uh, well, I'm pretty sure all the full-time students can outdrink the part-time students <laughs> any day of the week. I was shocked by it. Like I did one of those, you know, business abroad trips with the business students. Um, and I was shocked by the endurance they had. <laughs> like they could party all night and all day and uh, have a great time and then just be like sharp as a whip the next day at whatever meeting we had to go to. Um, no, I, I think I do, I did notice that with the full-time students, because that's all you're focused on for those two years. Um, I think they do, the, the networks that they, and the connections that they build are a little bit different. With part-time, you sort of find your niche and you find your group of students, but you, it's, for me at least, my network, I don't think was as broad as it would have been if I'd been in a full-time program. Makes but sense. Then I, yeah, but then also like in part-time, you're, my, my, like the students I was with were amazing. They were uh, brilliant, you know, people who worked in, you know, it was NYU, so it was very finance centric and Wall Street centric. So it was, I was exposed to people who had very successful careers at the same time. And so they had a totally different perspective on things. Yeah, sometimes it could just be helpful to have role models or see other people doing things to encourage yourself too, if you haven't figured that you know, path out yet. Don't know what's in, you know, next for you. So thinking back at this point, then, you know, before you recruited to the management teams of these different immuno oncology companies, you first spent a number of years at Novartis developing their CAR T platform, right? Which ultimately led to the approval of Kimra for pediatric leukemia, which is absolutely incredible. How did you end up in that path and that spot to begin with? And did that lay the foundation for the skills that were necessary in the years to come? Or was every job different from then on in very different ways? Yeah, every single job I did and everything I worked on in every task I had, no matter how big or how small, was educational for me. Mm. Um, Everything down to just the way your protocols are formatted or the way um, you have to submit 
things to regulatory agencies, just everything that the, the way you allocate patients for slots in a trial, um, the way you even do meeting minutes and document, like everything was helpful for me. I learned every single step of the way. Um, you know, I think that really what set me up was this um, mentality of like, you just got to feel the fear, but do it anyway. So there were plenty of times when I felt like I was totally unqualified or I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, but I was always really willing to learn and, and put in the, the sweat to, to try to figure it out and surrounded myself with friends and colleagues who were smarter and more experienced than I was and owe a lot to a lot of people who, who helped me along the way and I learned from. Um, and some of those people are you know, still friends with them 15 years later. Um, so I think having the mentality of nothing is below you, you do everything, you learn from everything. It, I guess it's like, it reminds me of the, the karate kid scene where he makes the, the, the kid wax the car, the wax on and wax off. Like you just got to do the wax on wax off because like that will come in handy. You might not know it yet. You might think it's just like, you know, sort of tedious and not important, but everything I ended up learning um, was important. Um, just learning how to really be an open-minded to, like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. communicating differently, learning how to facilitate, do stakeholder management. Um, really the fundamental essence is learning how to, whenever you want something, it's easier to get it done if in the process you make people look good and you make, or, and, or you make their jobs easier. Like that, if you can do that with your colleagues while you're trying to get stuff done, like that's, that's the ultimate sort of success of a, of a team. Um, so I think first it was that mentality and having that mentality and not being afraid to like, if someone had, you know, I was told to do a lot of tedious stuff initially, but all of it was educational and nothing was below me. Um, so I think that's what set me up because what happened was I would do all these things and learn, learn these things through tasks or, or, or projects or programs that are, would, that would always serve me well later. Um, and so I would find it, it would be opportunistic in be ready to take on a role that I could actually do because I had done something in the past that I didn't necessarily realize was so valuable at the time. Um, so I, I think just one by one, I took these positions and learned from them. And the next position I take would build off of that. And that's what sort of, it, it over time, it escalated from one, one position to another. Um, and I think from the way I got to the CAR-T deal is uh, that really, sort of defaulted to me because um, I was on the, the BD team that is the, the Novartis team that did the deal with Penn and having gone through that, that process, um, you end up doing the due diligence, you end up learning everything you can about the program. And when that whole thing was done and the deal was signed and finalized, I knew the most about the program. And it was, I think, different enough at the time that there wasn't any other expert around that could say they knew more about it. And so it sort of defaulted to me. So it was an opportunity that I took. It was a, I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, but I also grabbed onto that opportunity and I was ready for it. And little things like my ICU background help with that or being able to format a protocol or, or you know, whatever it is. Um, all of those things ended up being helpful uh, just because 
the, at the time when Novartis was, was bringing, we were transitioning the programs into Novartis, we had to break a lot of rules and we had to think outside of the box and the SOPs were not applicable. And um, you sort of had to have the entrepreneurial spirit to, to make it work. Um, so I think it was a combination of just not being afraid to do the quote unquote, like menial work um, and not like nothing's below you, not being afraid to be opportunistic, um, just take every opportunity you can to learn and contribute. Um, I guess focus more on, focus, I, I focused a lot on what, what can I contribute and what can I learn from this versus like, what am I going to get out of it? And I think that that's like, I wasn't worried about titles and things like that. Um, I wanted to keep learning, keep contributing, keep learning. And I think that's, that served me well because that set me up to be able to take advantage of opportunities that were coming through. So I got lucky. The short answer is I got lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, but whenever opportunities did come around, um, I was able to tackle them. Mm. So part of this equation might be for some people could be salary and the opportunity cost of, you know, they may have an attending physician salary, they may have kids, they might have family and then have to pivot. And something Session mentioned, which was interesting, is that if you keep your lifestyle lower earlier on, you could take a little bit more risks. I know in VC, for example, the salaries compared to clinical practice tend to be quite a bit lower at the beginning, but scale up um, quite a bit higher if you're successful in your investments and they mature. If you're breaking into this area, um, whether on the management team of a biotech company or just starting out in biotech, how much you uh, think about the income scale compared to that of a surgeon, that of a resident? Um, and was that a factor at all that you had to think about taking those risks? Um, for me, I was, I was lucky. I, you know, when I first went into industry, I didn't have to support a family. Um, I could feed myself and just all I had to do is take care of myself. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, so I was very privileged in that sense. And so I didn't have to worry about salary. I didn't have to worry about you know, opportunity, lost opportunities that would, you know, cost money. Um, so that gave me a certain degree of freedom. And I was also able to move and I was able to go to where I thought, you know, whatever opportunities I had, I, in fact, I moved out to California and that was, that move to California is what got me into clinical development. Right. So it's, um, I had the freedom. I didn't, honestly, I didn't think about the, the money part of it. I was in pursuit of experience and learning, um, which I know is it, it, you have to be in a position of privilege. You have to be very privileged to have that. Um, but I would say overall though, for those who are focused or, you know, money's really important because they have to support their families or, or any other pressures they might have. If, if money is important, I would say, um, you know, initially, I, would, I think the, the biotech or pharma compensation is actually quite fair and often much better than what you would get in, in traditional clinical practice. Um, so, I, But I think even that varies a lot. Like if you're in private practice versus you're on staff, you know, staff at a large academic center, I think there can be a very wide distribution of what the salary looks like. Um, in general, I feel like the biotech and the pharma compensations are very fair. And um, once you reach a certain level are actually more than what you would get um, non average if you stayed in clinical practice. Yeah, yeah. And I think also early stage, a lot of it probably has to do with if your company ends up being successful, if you because you get compensated often in 
and options or equity or right? Yeah, yeah, there's different ways. So if you're at a smaller biotech that's that's private, then yeah, you can you, you have equity. And if that company does well, then you that's you know, you get a lot of compensation like that. But even your your um sort of annual base salary is is pretty good. Um, you know, especially right now, the demand for physicians who know how to develop drugs or devices or, or anything in the biotech pharma world, um, the demand is so high and there's not enough of us who have experience in, who have made a career out of this, right? So because the demand outstrips the supply, a lot of us can actually command our own salaries. Like we're the ones that tell these companies, this is what I want. Um, but, but I think like you, you have to reach that point. <laughs> when I was starting out, I certainly didn't have a super high salary, but that was you know only for a couple of years until I got um, some established experience. Um, but I would think, yeah, so small companies, yes, you get equity. You may not have like a huge base salary, but your base salary is still gonna be pretty decent compared to what you might get in, from an academic center. Um, and then I think for large companies like pharma, you always hear this term golden handcuffs. Right. And that's, they lock you in with incentives and you do have a good salary. You have, you know, usually pretty large annual bonus. Um, you meet your goals and uh, goals, meaning like drug, for me, it was always drug development goals. Um, and, uh, and they, you know, they give you equity too, that vests over time. And so people call those golden handcuffs because it's hard to walk away. Because whenever you walk away or you leave pharma, you leave a lot of equity on the table. Right, right, yeah. And I think this is interesting in th this career because I, I don't think the idea of having a sizable, fair base salary necessarily exists in early stage startups and other sectors the way they may in biotech pharma where you need really high, highly educated, highly skilled professionals to do something very sophisticated and complex involving patients. I wonder if this sector might be a little different from maybe some others that may take a little bit longer to, to find something that would be equivalent in opportunity cost to being a physician. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it really boils down to, to supply and demand. Yeah. Like, and I, right now, at this point in time, in oncology, therapeutics, drug development, you know, especially cell therapy, um, there is a limited... I guess, you know, limited number of candidates that can actually function as a, a chief medical officer, or even like a head of clinical development or, or even any, any kind of um, sort of medical monitor role. It, you, you have to understand how things work in industry to, to be able to very smoothly and efficiently run with it. But, but you're right, like it, it's other, other areas, there, the supply and demand might not be as so out of whack. And so that supply demand really drives a lot of you know, the compensation that you get. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I might actually backtrack my prior statement. I think it really just comes down to supply and demand because I think there, even within other sectors, you can find uh, situations where there's demand for niche expertise that, you know, requires just putting your clinical perspective on, you know, a clinical hat um, and that imbalance may exist. And so I, I would backtrack my statement that maybe it's just biotech pharma. Um, pivoting a little bit, Curious, what are the greatest challenges you faced as a chief medical officer, particularly thinking about like what keeps you up at night now versus as a surgeon, 
Um, and what gets you excited now versus when you were practicing? Uh, I feel like, um, so I guess as a, as a physician um, or surgeon, when you're taking care of patients, you're just ultra focused on the patient, how the patient's doing, if we're doing the right thing for the patient. That's what would keep me up at night is, did I make the right decision? Did I do the right thing? Is the patient gonna be okay? And whether or not it's in or out of your control. Um, I was perpetually terrified of doing something or not doing something that would result in the patient not doing as well, right? Like I didn't wanna miss something or I didn't wanna do something that was wrong. Um, it was, it's all about the patient. I think in, as a chief medical officer at a biotech, it shifts a little bit. Um, you know, you're still worried about the patient, but because you're an industry, you're not allowed to have direct exposure to the patient. You, you get all of their data, you know, everything's de-identified, everything is, you know, in a, coming from a database or verbal reports. You can't fixate on the patient as much. Um, you've, you're always trying to make sure you do the right thing. But for me, it's shifted more to, I need to make sure my team and my colleagues at this biotech, um, you know, they become your family and you have to be functional together to keep things running. Right, like you can't have severe dysfunction; otherwise, your clinical trial is not going to go well, and you know, or you might not be developing the drug the, the most efficient way. Um, so, the the shift, have, you know, for me as a chief medical officer has become more of a how do I how do I make sure we have a, a really functioning, like highly functioning team that's executing this? So we're not there at the bedside with the patient, but we are there you know, trying to oversee and stage things correctly and plan for things correctly to execute these clinical trials that could get a new, you know, in my case, new therapy to, to, to patients. And if, you know, that could help a lot of people. And if you screw that up, you risk never getting that therapy to patients. Yeah. So it, it's shifted. It's all about the patients, but I think the mentality, it turns into more of a teamwork thing where you're trying not to screw something up that in the future might mean a lot to a lot of patients. Yeah, yeah, that's very insightful, very insightful. Um, as my second line- I still get, yeah. just for the record, yeah. whenever we're doing, starting a first in human trial with a novel agent, I still get the piss shit puke feeling right before that piece mm. was The night before, I usually am, you know, tossing and turning and, and, and nervous because it just you never know what's going to happen when that very first patient gets dosed. I think that's a hallmark of a really good CMO. <laughs> Angela, where do you see yourself going next? Uh, you know, I really, um, I think my sweet spot is the really small team, the small company, small group um, environment where it's, uh, there's an asset that's maybe in the lab um, and not quite to clinic yet. And there might be a group of people around it working on it that's still in the single digit in terms of size. So five or eight or nine or whatever it is. Um, I like I like that environment where you're, you're huddling with these brilliant scientists and trying to figure out how to translate that asset from the preclinical data into like, how do you get into humans? And how do you design your first in human trial? And uh, I really like that smaller team environment because it's very, it feels different than having a, a large organization. 
Um, so I think I'll probably always stay in that area. That's where I feel the happiest and I, it's my sweet spot. Um, and it doesn't matter if that's in a, in a biotech or an academia, uh, that's, you know, I, in the future, that's probably where I'm going to stay. Makes sense. I've heard this oftentimes. I do feel like certain people fit really nicely, you know, that there's, I feel like there's a lot of nice ADD in small companies or small environments who put on different hats and scrappy with people that really can't replicate that. Well, I guess sometimes you could, if you have like a team within a bigger company, but it could be trickier. Um, for my last question, Angela, um, we, uh, end our episodes, these last few, um, uh, interviews with a segment called picks where we have our guests recommend something they enjoyed recently. It could be anything. It could be a TV show, a book, an article, a song, a movie, another podcast. Um, is there something you came across recently that you found interesting that you might want to recommend? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so just as a disclaimer, I have two little kids who are very high maintenance. <laughs> I guess all little kids are high maintenance. So we don't have that much time. Um, but in, you know, whenever I do have time, uh, recently one of the, the series of uh, some Netflix, uh, I guess, episodes that I watched was Queen's Gambit. And I love that because I'm all about just like girl, pa girl power, um, just brilliant women rising to the top. Uh, so I, I really like, um, I like that, that episode and she, she was just so brilliant. And I think the actress who played her did a phenomenal job. Um, but uh, that was that was a while ago. We don't watch too much stuff just because there's always like little kids up to some kind of shenanigans that needs to get busted up. Um, but the the one thing I would recommend is something called Masterclass. Um, and this I got a, a a subscription as a gift as a Christmas gift. And Masterclass is um, a series of I guess it's like TED Talk but on steroids. Huh. Um, it's a series of, you need a subscription and it's, uh, once you have a su subscription, you have access, they basically invite the like, true experts of the field, any and all fields. There's artists, musicians, there's writers, there's scientists, there's, um, you know, like Anna Wintour from, from Vogue, you know, talking and they're all talking about their, their areas of expertise. Um, and that's why they call it masterclass is so you can you can uh, click on any of these options um, and hear a true expert speak about their area and their personal experience. And I think this is fascinating because you get like good glimpses of what these totally different worlds are like. And it's not, it's, you're getting glimpses from true experts in the field. Um, so I think that's, I think masterclass is, uh, you know, really, at least worth it for me. That's so cool. I have to check that out. That, that's really interesting. Go figure. Well, Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. It was such a privilege to have you and Chad, and I appreciate your the candor you always have and sharing your experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It was really fun to catch up with you. And, uh, no, I hope that some of the the um, content that we covered might resonate with people or help them think through what it is they want to do or focus on. So hopefully it's uh, helpful to others too. That does it for this episode of The Doctors Out. 
Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support us, please leave a review on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast platform you use. And if there's something you found you really liked, or didn't like, or would like to make a suggestion, feel free to reach out by email at info at tdio.org.